instead, we see the narrative or part of the narrative of the birth and in particular the, the conception of the Son of God. Last week, we covered in verses 1 through 17 the ancestry of Jesus. This week, we want to begin to talk about God takes on human flesh through the birth of Jesus and provides the forgiveness of sins to those who trust in Jesus. God, the eternal one, wraps him flesh, himself in human flesh in this birth. And as a result of that, there is forgiveness of sins, not just in a general sense, but to those who actually apprehend or trust in Jesus, the Messiah. And as we stated last week, and it's important for us to remember that there are a couple things that Matthew is doing or the purpose of this letter. It's an apologetic. He is defending who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah. He is proving that Jesus is the one that was promised to Israel. And as we talked about last week, Israel had an expectation of what that Savior King would be. And they primarily thought that he was going to physically change their position. That we're going to go from being at the bottom, as Drake would say, to the top. Some of you have no idea what that reference means. That's okay. Started from the bottom. Now I'm, I'm here. I am a king. We're controlling and ruling and reigning once again. That's not why he came. They missed it. He is not that kind of Messiah. But also what we saw in this genealogy, thank you all, by the way. Most of you stayed awake, Ashley, last week. You never know, preaching through a genealogy, what's going to happen. That he is the qualified Messiah. He meets the requirements of what a Messiah was to be from a human perspective. The Messiah had to be part of the family of David, part of the family of Abraham. Jesus meets that. But we're not, it's not just enough to meet it from a human perspective. It's got to be from a divine perspective. His birth is radically different from any conception that we've seen. He's not only from the royal line of David, he's from the divine side of God in a sense in his birth. He teaches us that this Messiah is the God-man. Now, brothers and sisters, we, we must pause there and even in that statement, Two things I've said have upset the church in a very, very great way. The virgin birth, virgin conception, and Jesus being the God-man has caused consternation in some. Uh, if you read some commentaries, which I'd actually ask you to stay away from some of those more liberal ones, they will say we can't ever understand the virgin birth, so why preach it? We don't see evidence of Jesus being the God-man, so why proclaim it? Can't we just stick? Can we just stick to Jesus just saving us from our sins? Isn't that enough? I would suggest to you it's not, brothers and sisters, because we've missed the gospel if we missed the God-man. Uh, we've completely missed the whole purpose of why he had to be God in order to satisfy, truly satisfy our sins. So there's a lot here that has unfortunately been denied. And uh, there'd have been a time maybe in life that if you'd go, and I'm sure you all talk about the sermon so much on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. In anticipation, Friday, you're talking about what's coming Sunday. I know that's all of you. That some would say, you're a fool. Who believes those sorts of things anymore? That a virgin could actually get pregnant. That a man could actually be God. Nobody believes that stuff anymore. You got, you're at that kind of church, huh? And you should say emphatically, yes, I am. 
I'm at that kind of church. We actually believe the Bible. What a novel idea. Four things I want to point out to you this morning from the text. Number one, we see the incarnation of God's son, Jesus the Messiah. The incarnation of God's son, Jesus the Messiah. Brian Swartley on these slides says these things regarding the incarnation. The biblical teaching regarding the incarnation of Christ and the person of the mediator is awe-inspiring. This doctrine amazes us, not simply because it is mysterious and somewhat beyond human comprehension, but because there is a sense in which the hypostatic union of the two natures in Christ is the greatest miracle in all of Scripture. And that is very difficult for us. The church has wrestled with this for a very, very long time. How is he 100% God and 100% man? How does that work? But he doesn't stop there. In order to save us, God had to become man. The son assumed a genuine human nature in order to perfectly obey God's law, in order to fulfill the covenant of works, suffer and die on the cross as a vicarious atonement and rise again victorious over sin, Satan, and death. God had to become man. The only way his righteous wrath was going to be fulfilled was with a God-man, not just a man. He had to be God. And God realizes that that has to come from his hand. He has to orchestrate this. As you heard read, Matthew gives a summary really in verses 18 and 19 of what he is going to uh, give us an understanding from Joseph's perspective. Now, here's, here's where scholarship, and it, it's really, to me, quite interesting what people say and how they try to understand the Bible. And I don't think they put enough time into really trying to understand the authorial intent of a letter. And what they will point to is like John, as you remember, as we studied John 1, what does John say about the virgin birth? Nothing. There's nothing written. So some will say, you know, Matthew is just inventing these things. He's really trying to, he's creating apologetic, but it's not a real story. He just wants people to believe that he's kind of making it up himself because the synoptic gospels don't all agree or some don't, as I just stated, say anything at all about the virgin conception of Jesus. So therefore, it should be dismissed. It's not real. Brothers and sisters, that is not a reality. Matthew does believe in the virgin birth. He does teach, and he points to why he believes this from Isaiah 7, 14, which you heard read at the worship team, and we will reference again today. But he gives this synopsis of what's going to come, and then he's going to give the actual story. Now, here's what we should know. There's two main stories of the, the birth of Jesus and the, and the um, narrative, the Christmas narrative that we normally read. Matthew and Luke, those are the two biggies. Matthew does it from Joseph's perspective, as we'll read this morning, and Luke does it from Mary's perspective. And we'll reference some of that so we can get some understanding of what's going on here. But in the entire section that Joseph, excuse me, that um, Matthew was going to explain about Joseph, he is talking about the birth of the Son of God. Uh, Galatians 4, verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, not under the law. It's clear that Paul thought and believed that Jesus Christ was born of a woman, although he is the God-man. So here's what we want to see. Some of the characters, if you will, of the incarnation are in their incarnation of Jesus. Number one, the role of Mary, the Theotokos. And we'll talk about what that means here in a moment. What role does Mary play? Needless to say, she is indeed a virgin. 
Uh, she is a young girl. And here's what, and you're apologetic. Some will go back to Isaiah 7:14 and say, well, brother, that's a misinterpretation. Virgin, Alma used there in Hebrew, can be young girl. And I would say, yes, you're right. But what does Mary say about herself when the angel comes to her in Luke's gospel and says, hey, Mary, you're going to give birth to the Son of God. She doesn't say, oh, man, you know, that's cool. She says, how's this going to happen? I've never known a man. Her response, by the way, is pretty remarkable. We see it here. Behold, the Lord's bondservant. Man, I love this. And man, would this be our mantra? There's something to learn from Mary. Not the deification or she is not a co-redemptrix. But her words here are powerful. And I sure wish I could say with her, with boldness, this is what I follow. Let it be unto me according to your word, Lord. Lord, whatever you say, let it be to me. We can learn from Mary there, can't we? I'd say, Lord, let it be according to my word, not yours. And the angel departed from her. And Mary said, I love this part of her Magnificat. My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Pay attention to that. Something important about that. Mary needs a Savior. So if Mary needs a Savior, Mary is a sinner. Put that in your, in, your, in your tool belt. For he has regarded the humble state of, the, of his bondservant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Needless to say, brothers and sisters, this role of Mary for us, I think there's two, and you've heard me say this about Mary. Some have unfortunately dismissed her as nothing, largely Protestants. And some have exalted her as everything, largely the Roman Catholic Church, that she has seen, uh, you know, her perpetual virginity. She's sinless. Those are the things that they would promote. Those things are not found in the scriptures, brothers and sisters. Uh, this sinless, sinlessness of Mary, this Catholic dogma called the Immaculate Conception, doesn't come around for a very long time. And again, we don't see this within scripture. Pope Pius IX December 8, 1854, says that Mary was conceived, that her, she was sinless herself. In order to give birth to the sinless one, she must be sinless. Now, I want you to think about that, brothers and sisters. If she was sinless, what would that mean for her mother, who, who they call Saint Anne? What would that mean for her mother? She had to be sinless as well. Adam. Oh, that messes everything up, doesn't it? <laughs> so Mary is a sinner in need of a Savior. She, again, is not a co-redemptrix. Some would say you need Jesus and Mary. Now, that's, now, let me pause here for a second. Don't run out of here saying that every Catholic believes that. Just like every Protestant doesn't believe the same thing, every Catholic doesn't believe some of this. So don't start, you are, you Catholics do this. That's not true. Find out what they believe about Mary. Find out what they say about Mary and engage in a conversation regarding what we teach about Mary, that Mary is called a highly favored one. We should honor her. She's important. We do not deify her. She is the Theotokos, which means she is, you know, I know that was on your mind. What is the Theotokos? You, know, you were thinking this morning, man, the Theotokos, I can't wait to get to church <laughs> to learn about the Theotokos. Okay, where's this idea come from? And most of you know this already, I'm sure. It comes from the Council of Chalcedon. 
Yeah, you know, I know. You know that. I know I'm giving you information you already know. Council of Chalcedon is the fourth ecumenical council of the church. It's, it's summoned by Marcion, and it's during what is really, the, there's a difficult issue that the church is dealing with. Now, this is where church history stuff, guys, this is why you got to learn it and try to understand it, because it really does play a lot into our theology and our understanding of theology. The church, for the first couple hundred years, did not battle about things. They did not battle about theology because what secular scholarship or more liberal scholarship will say was the early church never believed these things. It's not until later on that they invent these things and insert them back in. What they don't understand or fail to realize, there were some things going on within the first couple hundred years of the church that kept it, kept it pretty difficult for them to engage in systematic theology. What's that called, by the way? Persecution. You know, hey, you know, we're getting fed to the lions. Let's get down and crank out some systematic theology. <laughs> no, you're trying to survive. It's not until Christianity becomes legal under Constantine that we begin to dialogue and wrestle with issues. And they really don't have a firm understanding at times. Who is this Jesus? And that's the main battle in the, in the ecumenical councils. They're trying to understand how do we explain who this Jesus is? Is he 100% God? That's what Nicaea is all about. You had one group saying, no, Jesus is a created being. Another said, no. Well, that continues to go on. But how does this work? How does the hypostatic union work? And the errors are Nestorianism and Eutychianism. In other words, is Jesus 100% God? Is he not? Is he 100% man? At what point does he cease to be human? What point does he become God? How does God die? How does God say in his humanity, I don't know? These are difficult things that the church is trying to understand. What are the natures of Christ? What is his deity and humanity? So within this... Um, document that's produced, the creed of Chalcedon, we see this. We then, the following holy fathers, all in one consent, teach men and confess one another, the same Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of reasonable soul and body, consubstantial, uh, with us according to manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God. That's Theotokos. She is the mother of God. But what unfortunately, when we take that statement, some say, okay, because she's the mother of God, she's above God. She's above Christ. She doesn't need a savior. And documents like this, that the intent, who is this document about? It's about Jesus. But if I take that little piece out, who's it become about? could be Mary. And I run with this idea that Mary, again, is the, is the mother of the Son of God. Therefore, she is, to be, she is to be worshiped. Now, here's what we ought to say back in Matthew 18. I mean, 118. The birth of Jesus Christ is as follows. Here's what we want to be more precise. Was, pay attention here. You guys put your thinking caps on here, so I know you'll get it. Was Jesus's birth supernatural? Pause before you answer. Think it through. Was Jesus' birth supernatural? Heretics! Security! Burn them! His conception. Jesus had a normal human birth. Jesus was a normal human without sin. What do we, does, did Jesus get tired and go to sleep? Did Jesus eat? Right? He did human things. His birth was human. The conception was supernatural. That's why it's somewhat misleading to say the virgin birth 
I, I, Mary probably had Burton. I've never had a baby. It may look like it this morning. I've never had one. <laughs> Ladies, and I've heard, I've seen it in my bride. I've never heard anyone say, that was the most pleasant experience of my life. <laughs> Maybe after the epidural, you say that. But before that, you're just like, ah, get this thing out of me. What's my point? Mary had birth pains. Jesus had a normal birth. He had an umbilical cord. He was a nor it was a normal birth. Jonathan Edwards says these words. His birth through the conception of Christ was supernatural. Yet after he was conceived, his human nature was gradually perfected in the womb of the virgin in a way of natural progress. And so his birth was in the way of nature, but his conception being supernatural, the power of the Holy Ghost, he was both conceived and born without sin. Amen. So what do we learn? Okay, we see that the role of Mary is great. She is important. She's a young lady who was told by an angel, you're going to give birth to the Son of God, Luke chapter 1. And she says, let it happen unto me according to your word. There's a problem though. She is betrothed to Joseph. What do we read here? Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Matthew's looking back and saying, this is the situation. And Joseph, her husband being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to, uh, to send her away secretly. Now, I want you to think about this. And here's what we got to understand Hebrew marriages. So once we have the introduction, by the way, how many of you young people want to live by biblical standards old and new? I'm going somewhere. Be careful before you answer. Because this is an arranged marriage. <laughs> I thought I'd get one. This is an arranged marriage. So they're, they're probably saying, okay, I see your boy Joseph. Hey, we've seen your daughter Mary. Let's get them together. Any ideas in here, guys? We've got a couple minutes. Anybody want to look around and match up? So once that happened and they realized that they're going to get married, there's a betrothal period for a year. Now, I want you to picture Joseph. And you don't live together, but you're legally married, although it's not official. Now, I want you to picture Joseph. They're not legally married. They're together. They're betrothed. I'm going to marry you in a year or so. And this young lady comes to you pregnant. And I don't, we don't know if she said, hey, you know, I know I'm pregnant, but an angel says the power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. And that's how I got pregnant. Now, I want you to picture you being Joseph. Guys, what would you say? This is a very human book. How do we know that he may not believe, if she told him that, how do we know that he, not, he may not believe her? Because he's thinking about putting her away. Come on, guys. Now, what would you do? You're pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So Joseph, now think about this. Joseph, being a righteous man, doesn't want to disgrace her. Here's what the nation of Israel, um, this is what we learn about Joseph, by the way, um, in Matthew. Is this not the carpenter's son? Um, we know this is where we get the idea that Jesus was, his father was a carpenter from Matthew later on. By the way, here's something else. Perpetual virginity of Mary. What do we learn here? This is why you want to remember these verses. Jesus had other brothers and sisters. 
So, and they were not super, you know, their, their conception was not supernatural. He, they had other brothers and sisters. But here's what was supposed to happen in the nation of Israel back in Deuteronomy. If there's a girl who's a virgin betrothed to a man and another man finds her in the city and sleeps with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death. The girl because she did not cry out for help though she was in the city and the man because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall eliminate this evil from among you. What does it say about the nation of Israel and their commitment to sexual purity is coming from the Lord? It's a big deal. By the way, the virgin wasn't just supposed to be, and we put this on our culture now. Yeah, we want the girls to be virgins. No, the expectation was both parties were going to be virgins. Sexual purity was a must in God's economy. It's not done yet. But if a man finds a girl who's betrothed in the field and the man sees her and rapes her, then only the man who rapes her shall die. And you're not to do anything to the girl. There is no sin and the girl worthy of death. For just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. When he found her in the field, the betrothed cried out, and there was no one to save her. My point is, if you're betrothed and you get pregnant, it was serious ramifications. Now, there's a reason why they didn't kill in this economy, in, this, at the, in the first century. Why? They weren't theonomous. In other words, Israel wasn't ruling anymore. Who was ruling over them? The Romans. They couldn't just do whatever they wanted to do. But they could get a divorce. All you needed was two witnesses and a certificate of divorce, and it'd be over. But because he's a just man, he's going to... Why does he want to divorce her? Because he's a just man. He realizes that this young lady, I'm a good guy. I'm holding on to the law, the righteousness of found in the law, and I am not going to marry you because you have been unfaithful to me. And more importantly, you've been unfaithful to Yahweh. So I'm a just man. I am not going to marry you. And he's going to, but he's also a humble man. I'm going to put her away secretly. He's a good guy. So what do we see in this incarnation? Joseph's going to need some more information, and we'll talk about the role of the Holy Spirit. I love how Piper talks about the Holy Spirit in this setting. Therefore, when the time came for the eternal Son of God to be sent by his Father into the world, the work of the Holy Spirit was a quiet, unobtrusive work in the service of the Father and the Son. Through him, the Father caused the Son to be conceived in Mary, the Virgin. So from the very beginning of Christ's incarnation, the Holy Spirit was quietly doing what needed to be done to put forward Jesus Christ as a Son of God and Savior of the man. What does this tell us in this? All we're told, Joseph's going to say it and the angel's going to repeat it here in a few moments, is that the Holy Spirit is going to do something in the womb of Mary. Medically speaking, brothers and sisters, I searched and I said, like, what's some, man, what's some clever way to explain to you how the Holy Spirit does it? We don't know. Nobody knows. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. The things that we know about have been revealed to us and then for our children as well. We don't know how it happened. What we do know is the Holy Spirit overshadows her and she becomes pregnant. Don't spend your time in your apologetic trying to explain it medically. We don't know, but we know that the Holy Spirit did it. We can't answer every question, brothers and sisters. Some things we just have to trust God. The Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. So you see the role of Mary, role of Joseph, and the role of the Holy Spirit. So the revelation of God's plan concerning Jesus, the Messiah. Look at what the angel does. Verse 20, we see that he is considering this. He is considering putting her away. He doesn't know what to do. Now, we don't know if this is a daydream or he actually goes to sleep. But either way, we know that this angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. Look at first the encouragement of this angel. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. 
Be encouraged. Don't be weakened. I mean, you've got to think about this, guy. She's pregnant, and if I marry her, what are people going to say about me? What are they going to say? How is this going to work? So he doesn't know what to do. Don't be afraid. The angel assures him, it's going to be okay, Joseph. Then he tells him four things. The conception is by the Holy Spirit. What Mary may have told you is true. Her pregnancy is not of man. It is supernatural. The Spirit has done something in her. Not only that, Mary's going to have a son. Isn't that what he says? Do not be afraid. The child who has been conceived is of the Holy Spirit, 21, she will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus. Now, this is important. If Joseph is going to adopt Jesus, which he does, usually what happens is he takes on your name. Why? So it shows that he's your son. Why doesn't Joseph do that? Jesus is not his son. He will adopt Jesus as his legal heir in a sense, bringing him in line with that Davidic covenant. But Joseph understands that who's Jesus' father? God above, the Holy Spirit has brought this about. Not only that, I love this last piece, and we should pause here and make sure we understand this. She will bear a son, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Notice what the angel doesn't say. In light of what we've read in the first 17 verses, wouldn't it make sense to say, and he's going to be the king of Israel? He is going to be the king of kings and Lord of lords. And although that is true, First thing we see mentioned here is he is going to save his people. This king who comes from the Davidic covenant in the line of Abraham is going to save his people from their sins. He is going to change all that they see and think about. He's going to save them from their sins. How do we, how do we, what do we do with that? How is Jesus going to save his people from their sins? Listen to this in Hebrews 2. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, he being Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, the flesh, that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And he might free those through the fear of death who were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give give um, help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. What does that mean? Jesus has set us free. He has paid the price. He has satisfied the wrath of God. He partook, uh, he partook of this flesh. Why? so that he might truly be our burden bearer. That's reason to praise him, isn't it? It's reason to give him glory. He is the merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Now, the faithful high priest would put sacrifices on the altar. This faithful high priest put himself on the altar to die for you. He is going to save his people from their sins. The explanation of God's work concerning Jesus the Messiah in verses 22 to 23 now, all this took place. Now, remember we talked about this last week. Matthew consistently points to the Old Testament. Why? He is trying to prove that Jesus is the Messiah to Jews. What are Jews going to value? The Old Testament. He points to the prophet Isaiah as he says this. Spoken by the Lord through the prophet. The prophet's Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child. 
and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. He's going to, he's explaining here what happens. Remember, there was an immediate fulfillment in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah has a son. But before, now this is where that cursed thing back there. In Isaiah chapter 7, I'm going to slow down and just go with it, man. There are three kingdoms involved. All right, so you've got, by the way, you've got King Ahaz, who is the king of Judah. Now remember the divided kingdom after David, after Solomon, I'm sorry, that the kingdom divides. So you've got Judah and Israel. So you've got here Ahaz, whose dad is pretty good, Uzziah. But Ahaz is very, very, very wicked. And you've got Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel. So Rezin, who is the king of Syria, which is Aram, and Pekah, who is the king of Israel, say, hey, we want to do away with this king in Judah. He's not getting with the program. We're going to, do it. We're going to get rid of him. And Isaiah is the prophet to Judah. And he comes to Ahaz and says, Ahaz, man, why are you fearful? Ask for a sign from the Lord. He'll give it to you. The Lord will wants to deliver you. Ahaz, all you've got to do is ask for a sign, and God's going to show you and prove to you that he's going to do it. And Ahaz, because he is so pious, not at all, says, I will not ask of the Lord a sign. That's when we see Isaiah 7:14. The Lord himself is going to give you a sign, Ahaz. And what we see is that Israel and, unfortunately, the Syrians, the Aramites, are going to be completely done away with. But there is one coming who is going to completely rescue this God with us. This Emmanuel will be born. The true fulfillment of the prophecy is going to come later. And Matthew says, this is the fulfillment of that in Isaiah. That God is going to be with you and he's never going to leave you. The promise of Isaiah 7:14 is going to happen through this God-man. And Jesus completely fulfills that being God with us. Man, if you got time this afternoon, go and read that Isaiah 7 passage. It's just a fast and fascinating study, and I did not do it justice at all. Lord's going to give a sign. The virgin is going to give birth to God, and God's going to be with you. Last piece of this, the reaction to God's command concerning Jesus the Messiah. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. Don't miss that. He heard a word from the Lord and he believed it. Did you hear that? He heard the word of the Lord and he believed it. Shouldn't that be every believer, every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, every follower of God? If you hear God's word, you believe it in faith. You trust it. We've gotten away from those days, though, haven't we? Ah, can we really trust the word of the Lord? Is half God said? Did he really say that? Did he really mean it? Who's my neighbor that I should be loving? I've got to be humble. I've got to forgive all people. I've got to be humble before all people. I'm to dwell with other brothers and sisters in unity. I am to have a heart of peace. I am to love everybody as I love myself. How are we doing with that one, brothers and sisters? Let me put my hands down quickly, lest you think I'm lying. God said it. We ought to believe it. We ought to be obedient to it. Joseph, we don't know a lot about him, 
But we do know that he was obedient to the word of the Lord. He actually marries Mary. I'm going to do it. Joseph's life was hard. Right? He has to pick up and leave. I want you to think about that. I don't think we think about Joseph enough. I am told to care for this woman and this baby, and I'm getting all these prophecies that say, run here, run there, go here, go there. That would have been it for me. Like, Lord, I'm a Mary, but I ain't taking her nowhere. I'm just kidding, honey. Just, don't. just a joke. He's got to do all this and care for this baby that he doesn't completely understand. But he is obedient to the word of God. He exercises faith. I would suggest to you that the true biblical narrative, faith is always coupled with obedience. We're the ones who have separated it and say, well, I believe God, but I don't need to do what he says. Jesus says the exact opposite. Why do you call me Lord? Why do you call me master? And you don't do what I say. The commandments of God are clear. We're called to exercise faith and then be obedient in our faith. It's a natural flow from our faith. We see that in James. We see that in Romans. Abraham believes God, but he also backs that up by doing what he is supposed to do. So brothers and sisters, I would suggest to you as we look at this text, do you believe God? Do you believe that God is with us through this God-man and that Jesus Christ came to save you from your sins? And can you really say that God is with you? Now, here's what's crazy. Most people in the world say, that, oh, yeah, God's with me. I've mentioned this before. Some of you, you know, Tupac Shakur, some of you may or may not know who he is. Only God can judge me. Everybody's he's got tattooed on his stomach. Everybody's got God in our world. Surely God's for me. I know God, I love God, but on your own terms. God says, no, if you're going to love me, you're going to love me on my terms. I set the terms on how you love me and how you approach me. And if you're going to approach me, you've got to approach this virgin born child in the womb, or excuse me, in, in, in the manger that is going to be going to that cross. See, we love to embrace the baby. How sweet to hold a newborn baby. We sing about it. But we don't always want to look to the cross because that's why this baby came, to die on that cross. That's morbid maybe for us. It's counterintuitive for us. That doesn't make any sense. Can't we just enjoy the grandeur of the birth? No. That's just the beginning because the end's going to be Hence, it's going to be death, resulting in life. So that's the shame. If you walk away saying, man, what a great story. Man, that virgin birth story is, man, it's neat. Man, that Joseph's a pretty impressive guy. Man, Mary, I, I always knew they were wrong in worshiping her. If that's all you walk away with, you haven't walked away with enough. I pray that you walk away seeing the Messiah, the one who has come to take away your sins, that has come to be God with you. I don't know about you, but that ought to be exciting to you. God is with you. He is with us when we come together collectively. But when you leave this place, he's still with you. Why then should I fear? 
Why then should I fret? Why then should I worry? God is with me. What can man do to me? I've got God with me. Doesn't mean life's not difficult. Doesn't mean life's not hard. He is with me. He has saved me. He has rescued me. The devil has no power over me. Death has no power over me. Life abides in me because of him. That's who we want to introduce you to today. That's why we pray you have gathered here today to come and meet the Savior, to come and see this babe who wrapped himself in flesh and is going to give that life for you. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Amen. Let's pray together because I could keep going and that'd be dangerous. <laughs> Father and our God, Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Lord, you are so incredibly good in your revealing of the Son to us. Lord, you have allowed us to see this babe in a manger, but not just as a babe. You have allowed us to understand and comprehend this sinless God-man who hung on a cross and died, that he might rescue us, not just to eternal life, but that we might have life and have it more abundantly, Lord, that we would be living the kingdom life now. The cross is just not for the sweet by and by. It's for the victorious life now, the holy life now, the committed life now. And I pray, Lord God, that we like Joseph and Mary who aren't very impressive by the world standards. Young child, Mary's maybe 12 or 13 years old. Joseph, a carpenter. He's not a high priest. He's not a political figure. They exercise faith with the information that is given. Angel, I'm going to adhere to the word of the Lord. Joseph says, Mary says, be it unto me. Maybe that's you or some in this crowd this morning, God. Would you draw them to yourself that they would maybe not say it the same way they said it, but Lord, have your way in my heart. Change me. Maybe some just need to say, Lord, I've, I've never surrendered my heart to you. Will you save me from my sins? Will you rescue me from the devil? Will you rescue me from my addiction? Would you give me the power to say no to it? Would you give me the power to receive eternal life? to understand who the Son is. God, would you change me? All for your glory. I give up, God. I'm tired of fighting with this world. I'm tired of fighting with myself. I'm tired of fighting with you. I surrender. Thank you that the message of the gospel isn't for the whole, it's for the sick. And we were all once sick. Come and receive the balm of Gilead. Christ, we love you. Draw men and women to yourself. In Christ's name we pray.